such a joy and encouragement to uh, receive the edification of the body in our singing. In the Colossians 3, that as we're singing, we are teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and it is such a joy to do that together. So thankful for the music team and thankful for the opportunity to fill the pulpit once again and to continue our study in Hebrews chapter 6. We began last week in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, and we'll pick up this week in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, and seek to make it all the way to Hebrews 6, verse 12. This was a tremendous week of encouragement around the church to see the the body ministering to one another and to the children of the ministry and as a, a parent i want to express thankfulness to all of those that ministered to the children this week and uh, seeing the uh, the truth taught to them and your steadfast sacrificial service so grateful to that and as a pastor i just want to express it is a profound joy to see the body at work, to see the body ministering and, and, and contributing what each part supplies, what each person brings to the ministry, and to uh, see something like an incredible week of VBS uh, be done to the glory of the Lord. So thankful for that. There was some hesitancy on my part in continuing in Hebrews chapter 6. For anyone who's familiar with the passage, you'll know it is one of the most severe warnings in all of the New Testament. As you think about after an exhilarating and exhausting week of VBS ministry to jump into a severe warning passage seems a little inconsiderate. Seems like we would turn to something that would be more comforting and rest for the weary, because that's where we're all at right now. As I thought about that, I certainly considered it. I recognize that some of the most difficult seasons of, of my life in spiritual lethargy came right on the heels of a season of diligent spiritual discipline. It seems like after we have exerted ourselves in the ministry, there's the temptation of, now I can take my foot off the gas, spiritually speaking, and I can just coast for a little bit. You know, I worked really hard last week. I was exhausted pouring myself out in ministry so I can just coast for a little bit. Actually, that is what our passage confronts in us is the idea of feeling as though we can take our foot off the gas spiritually. We can just continue on in spiritual laziness for a little while and we'll get things right later. The reason the author tells us that is such a danger is because we'll see in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, that there is a point of no return from spiritual immaturity that results in apostasy, abandoning the truth altogether. Now, anytime we mention the word apostasy, it is not a fun topic. It's not enjoyable to speak about those who once professed Christ and, and, and they, they presented themselves as believers, having true faith. They were a part of the church. They were serving. They, they were doing all the things that externally you'd expect of a Christian. And now they have abandoned the faith. It's very difficult for us to talk about. But the scripture promises apostasy. So we should not be shocked by it. As a church, it's not that we should certainly want it to happen. We would never want that. But we should not be caught off guard as though this is not a reality for the church. Apostasy is not just unbelief, but formerly professing genuine faith, but not actually possessing faith. They said they were believers, but they ultimately rejected Christ and turned away. I believe that we often think of apostasy the wrong way. We think of it as, 
uh, as uh, accidentally arriving at this obscure location that we've never been to. And it's really difficult to apostatize and, and, and that not many people do it where in reality, the scripture presents apostasy and in some regards, the illustration of a river, if you do nothing, you're just going to be carried along by the stream. And think of, uh, of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, where uh, the author, where Paul says, we are to redeem the time because the days are evil. That's that downward stream. The natural drift of our lives is towards evil towards unbelief, and apart from the work of the Spirit through His Word in our hearts, that's where all of us drift to. I think it's much easier to see that the, the root of apostasy is at work in all of our hearts, and uh, we know that because we have all been through seasons where you acknowledge, I am so weak, I am filled with unbelief, and Apart from, like we just sang about, the mercy of God being all of our plea, all of our boast, all of our rest, all of our joy, apart from God's mercy, I would abandon the faith. I would make shipwreck if it were totally up to me. I would have ruined this a long time ago. We see those seeds of apostasy in our heart. I think the uh, Niagara Falls is a vivid picture of this. I want to read to you a, a story of an account of, of some people going over the falls Speaking of Horseshoe Falls at Niagara Falls being the most powerful waterfall in North America, it is 187 feet tall and some 2,590 feet wide. 5.9 million cubic feet of water go over the falls every minute. It's a story about a young boy named Roger Woodard and his sister and a family friend. I want to read it from a, a man named Billy Riggs wrote this. On July 9th, 1960, seven-year-old Roger Woodard and his 17-year-old sister Deanne, both of Niagara Falls, New York, set out on a boat ride through the upper Niagara River with family friend James Honeycutt. As he had done many times before, Honeycutt pulled his 12-foot aluminum skiff, which was powered by a seven-and-a-half horsepower outboard motor, five miles upriver from the falls and put in at Grand Island Dock in Beaver Island State Park. The children donned on their life preservers, and the three of them put, putted out into the river. Then, for reasons that will never be known, James Honeycutt shut off his motor. The three talked and drifted for about an hour, and eventually floated under the North Grand Island Bridge, the marker that serves for the locals as the unofficial point of no return. Sometime later, James Honeycutt decided that it was time to start his motor and turn around and head for home, but soon discovered that his seven-and-a-half-horsepower motor was no match for the mighty Niagara. Even at full, thr full throttle, the boat continued to creep backwards, and the situation went from bad to worse when the overtaxed propeller was ripped completely off the motor. Honeycutt grabbed two oars and began to row mightily toward land, fighting the most powerful waterfall on earth with only his biceps. As they entered the rapids above the falls, the boat struck a rock and capsized, throwing all three into the turbulent, frigid waters. The teenage girl clung tenaciously to the boat, and when the torrent finally wrested it from her grasp, she found herself not terribly far from Goat Island, the huge landmass in the middle of the river that separates the American Falls to the south from the Canadian Horseshoe Falls to the north. A 44-year-old New Jersey truck driver who happened to be viewing the falls with his family that day spotted her and began to scream to the girl, you're fighting for your life. 
At great peril to his own life, the man climbed over the rail and thrust his left foot tightly between the bars and dangled precariously over the cascading waters by one leg in an attempt to reach the terrified girl. She managed to grab the man's thumb just 15 feet before she would have almost certainly have plunged to her death. Another onlooker climbed over the rail and grabbed her life jacket and pulled her to safety. By now, her little brother had long since disappeared over the precipice. Experts later concluded that because the lad weighed only 46 pounds, the momentum of the water, which travels through the rapids at up to 70 miles per hour, must have flung him far out beyond the falls and jagged rocks below so that he landed in deep water. When he shot to the surface, courtesy of his life preserver, he was spotted by a crew member of the Mate of the Mist, the boat that routinely ferries tourists to and fro at the base of the falls and was rescued with only a mild concussion. The boy, Roger Woodard, is now in his late 60s and remains to this day the only person who has ever gone over Niagara Falls unintentionally and survived. The entire episode is still known among locals as the Niagara Miracle, but there would be no miracle for James Honeycutt. His body was found three days later when it surfaced just a quarter mile downriver. James Honeycutt perished because he drifted too long, assuming he could fire up his motor and reverse course any time he pleased and successfully fight the current. So, fascinating article. And I think it illustrates for us the warning that our passage gives us, that those who float through the church, sitting under the truth, uh, they, they're experiencing so many blessings of being in the body of Christ, and yet they're deluding themselves that they can turn against the massive current of unbelief at any time they want. And they can ignore all the danger signs, all the warnings of where coasting through an unbelief ends up. I think this story of James Huntingcutt is a picture of what can happen. And actually, our passage ahead of us demonstrates that there is that place of no return where there's no longer an opportunity for this one to be restored to repentance. We'll see that when we get down to verse 4 through 6. Now, I have to make a brief disclaimer as we go into our text. I taught this passage to the youth and spent three weeks working through verses 1 through 12. So what task you and I have before us is uh, what took me three weeks with the youth we are going to attempt to do in the next 40 minutes or so. So um, buckle up and uh, make sure you have no sluggish ears that we identified last week. We're abandoning those this week, those spiritual immaturities. And we are looking this week at four steps to abandon spiritual immaturity. That's how I framed up the passage for us. Four steps to abandon spiritual immaturity. We'll see the first in verse 1 through 3, and that is to press on to maturity. Press on to maturity. Look at verse 1 with me. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. It begins with a conjunction, therefore, connecting these verses uh, to what we just studied last week in 5, 11 through 14, that there are spiritual immaturities that we need to identify and abandon so that we would pursue spiritual maturity. Therefore, he says, and then here's the main verb, let us press on to maturity. Because spiritual immaturity is a real threat for our lives, we must press on. 
This term press on is used of moving from one position into another and indicates swift, energetic movement. He's saying we have must moved out of this place of spiritual immaturity, spiritual laziness and lethargy, and we must move into maturity. As we saw last week, this maturity is the continued practice of, of discerning and living out what is good as opposed to what is evil. It is spiritual sensitivity and, and going to the spiritual weight room, so to say, that you are, you are practiced and knowing how your own heart responds in temptation and knowing the word of God and in the moment you believe. That's the spiritually mature. He then tells us how to do so with two participles or helping verbs that contrast one another. We'll see the first one at the beginning of the verse. He says, therefore, here's how we press on to maturity, by leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ. By leaving something behind is the first way that you and I press on to maturity. Here he says, leaving behind. This is not the idea of abandoning something altogether as though it's, it's not important. It, it is rather the idea of building upon something. He's saying, leaving behind the elementary teaching about the Christ. Now here, the elementary teaching about the Christ is not a problem to be disregarded and to abandon. It is rather a foundation to be built upon. And we'll see that in the, the second clause that he brings up. But I just want to emphasize that uh, this is to say, do not reject these truths as though they are unessential, but do not end there as though they are the sum total of the Christian life. Uh, there's a, a tendency to say, you know what, I have a basic elementary grasp and that's enough. You know, I'm content. I know the ABCs. I don't really need to go beyond that. The author of Hebrews says, if you and I are to press on to maturity, we must leave behind the elementary principles, not abandoning them, but building upon them. Listen to the way that uh, commentator Philip Hughes says it. I love this description. It says, to leave the elementary doctrines does not mean to despise or abandon them any more than a, uh, a pupil who has learned the ABCs can then dispense with the alphabet. The letters of the alphabet are indispensable in the formulation and communication of the most advanced learning. For progress to maturity is always cumulative. So also the first principles of Christian truth are basic to every stage of development and are no less essential at the end than they are at the beginning. The point is, is that the beginning is not the stopping place. We have to grow beyond. He gives us a second participle here, a second means of pressing on to maturity at the end of verse 1. says, by not laying again a foundation, by, by not relaying the same foundation, and then he gives six nouns that are what make up that foundation. And ultimately, this term laying again is just describing the construction process of laying a foundation for a building. Now, right here, we have to say again, he's not saying you just need to abandon the foundation. <laughs> That's not the case at all. He's saying a foundation itself is not enough. You must build upon it. The foundation is only meant to be, as we say, foundational. We are to build upon it. This is part of growing in maturity you are, you are not living in this continual state of deconstruction of, oh, I have these foundational principles. You know, I just need to keep deconstructing them. That's a popular phrase these days where, where now you question everything you believe from every possible angle and you just never grow beyond the most basics. You just keep relearning those. 
the author of Hebrews says that's not how you arrive at maturity. We're not going to lay again these foundations. And then he gives us six foundations we need to build upon when we work through these quickly. He says the first, these are coming in groups of two. First foundation here is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Here, repentance from dead works is the basic foundation of the gospel. You must turn away from your unbelief, your love of sin, and then positively turn in faith towards God. Repentance and faith are the theme of John the Baptist's ministry in Mark 1.4, the theme of Christ's ministry, Mark 1.14 and 15, and central to the apostles' message. You can see that in Acts 2.32. This is repentance from dead works. And there, the idea of dead works here is really the entire life of unbelief. I like the way John Calvin says it, Every sin is a dead work because either it works death or because it arises from spiritual death of the soul. And what is the basic foundation of Christianity? You repent from those unbelief, those dead works, and you turn in faith toward God. The second pair of foundations require a little more explanation, but we'll run through them briefly. He says here, instructions about washings and the laying on of hands. Now here it is more difficult to discern the meaning because these phrases are not used throughout the New Testament in a foundational Christian teaching. So you would expect here, if we were writing it ourselves, we'd expect, okay, repentance, faith. Next thing I would interpret would be baptism and the Lord's Supper. It would seem to flow naturally right along there that the believer who has repented and believed is baptized and they partake in the Lord's table. So some try to twist this instruction about washings and laying on of hands to equate to uh, baptism in the Lord's Supper. I believe, uh, in reality, this phrase uh, about washings, this instruction or teaching about washings, this word washings is plural. It's, if you were translating it as baptism, you'd have to do baptisms, plural. But it's used in the plural sense to refer to ceremonial washing and cleansing. It's used that way in Mark 7, 4 and Mark 7, 8. And more importantly, in our near context in Hebrews 9, 10, speaking of ceremonial washings that priests would have to do if they were to do their priestly service in the temple. I believe that idea of the priest and ceremonial washings is what is in view here. And this foundational teaching is that those washings cannot cleanse you. They cannot cleanse your inner life. Why? Because they only deal with externals. You can jot down Hebrews 9.10 if you want to reference that later. The second phrase, laying on of hands, is also difficult to interpret because... The, the, the New Testament ideas of laying on of hands are, are various, and it doesn't seem that, that any one of these fits. Things such as uh, the context of laying on hands to bless someone, or Jesus or Paul laying hands on someone to heal them, or even of Timothy being ordained to ministry, or the deacons in Acts chapter 6. All of, all of these things don't really seem to fit the context. There are some that say this is the laying on of hands that happened in Acts for uh, new believers to receive the Spirit. I, I could follow along there. If there was another place that laying on of hands was indicating uh, receiving the Spirit, 
I don't believe that's in view here. I believe in the context of the priestly ministry that's from Hebrews 5 all the way to Hebrews 10. Here he is speaking of an Old Testament practice that the priests would lay their hands on the animal sacrifice to impute the sins of the people onto that animal for it to be slaughtered and the blood to be poured out on the mercy seat. So this instruction about washings is saying washings cannot cleanse your heart because they're external instruction on the laying on of hands is ultimately the the priest laying his hands on this animal does not cleanse you of sin it's just indicating you need a savior you need true cleansing in your heart and you need atonement that is greater than what the priest can offer the third pair considers eternity it says and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment this resurrection of the dead is the crucial foundation that believers must believe there is life after death. This life is not all there is. If this life was all there is, we would all live for our personal pleasure in the moment. We certainly would not need Christ. And the, the same time, he includes their eternal judgment. If someone does not believe in eternal judgment, they will not turn to Christ. They won't see their need for justification. They, they have no fear of their sin because it will not be judged. The author is saying these six foundations are not the sum total of our faith. They are to be built upon. If you and I are to mature in our Christian walk, it is not to stay with the most basic foundational principles. It's to move beyond them and build upon them. Which brings us to verse 3. The author says that all of this, this pressing on to maturity, is only going to happen if God permits. He says, in this we will do if God permits. He is pointing to the nature of spiritual maturity being something that God accomplishes in the believer. Now, this does not negate the fact that pressing on to maturity is our responsibility, not laying again these foundations and, and yet building upon them. That is on us. You and I are responsible in that regard, yet we acknowledge only God causes the growth in the body. Only the Lord, through the work of His Spirit and His Word, can produce spiritual maturity. If you see persistent immaturities in your life, you can't just say, I'm going to really exert effort and pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps and and I'm going to mature myself in the faith. That's not how spiritual maturity works. You and I have no ability in and of ourselves to grow ourselves spiritually. At the same time, when you do see spiritual growth in your life, you shouldn't look at it and say, look what I have done. I've accomplished something. I've arrived somewhere. No, you should look and say, this is all the work of the Lord. He's been so merciful to take a sinner like me and, and grow me in accordance with my salvation. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 describe this. As Paul tells the believers, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works, who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the the difficult truths to reconcile. You and I are responsible to pursue spiritual maturity, and only God can cause the growth. And the mature believer can live in that tension and say, I'm going to exert every effort, and I'm going to put no faith in my effort. I'm going to put my faith in the work of the Lord. That is our first step in growing in spiritual maturity and abandoning immaturities is to press on to maturity. Secondly, look at verse 4 to 6 where we'll see the second step is to beware of apostasy. 
Now, verses 4 through 6 are what many commentators would consider to be one of the most severe warnings in the entirety of the New Testament. Why? Because verse 4 begins in Greek with the word impossible. Impossible. Now, in your English translation, that doesn't show up until verse 6. You see down in verse 6, he says, It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. There is a group that is described here uh, by, by six phrases. Five of them I would call spiritual experiences and exposure to the truth. And then the last thing that describes this group is then ultimately they fall away. And this word impossible is placed emphatically forward in verse 4 saying, It is impossible for this group that meets all six of these requirements to be restored again to repentance. Just saying, as we talked about in our illustration at the beginning, there is a point of no return where the, the, the one who professes faith in Christ but doesn't possess faith in Christ, there is a point where they have been carried so far along in that current of unbelief that ultimately they have abandoned the truth altogether. One more exegetical thing for us to consider before we dig into these verses the primary question when you come to these verses is, who is he talking about here? Who is the group those cannot be restored to repentance? And there are four views that while I will address briefly. The first view is a true believer who loses rewards but not salvation. Now, I think this is entirely foreign to the context. We'll see in these verses, and then especially in verse 7 and 8, this isn't speaking of a believer losing rewards. This is speaking of an unbeliever being condemned. Number two, there's the view that it is written to true believers, but the warning is only hypothetical and couldn't actually happen because a true believer can't lose their salvation. Now, this is the danger of coming to a passage and reading your theology in. And you, you know your Bible, you're convinced of, of Romans chapter 8 that will be in soon with Pastor Mark, and you know that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I, 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 can't, I can't get myself out of this position of grace. This is the work of the Lord. He saved me. I didn't save myself. Nothing can snatch me from his hand, from Christ's hand, John 10, because Christ's hand is inside the Father's hand. I am secure. You bring that theology to a warning like this and just say, I don't need to strive. There's no real danger of apostasy. You are actually proving yourself to be in unbelief of what God has said. I'm not condemning the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, of the security of the believer. That's certainly seen throughout the scripture. We'll even dig into that a bit in verses 9 through 12. But we cannot read our theology into a passage where the passage carries no weight. As though God's just putting up this theoretical warning sign that if you kept going this way, there would be a cliff ahead of you. No, there is a real cliff here. There's a real tumbling to uh, eternal death, and it is for those, as we'll see, the, uh, a fourth view here, is that it is apostates who profess faith in Christ, but did not possess saving faith in Christ. I think I skipped the third one. <laughs> the third is true believers who actually lose their salvation, and I think I address that by emphasizing the, the sovereignty of God in salvation, that uh, that would be foreign to all of the scripture, that you would undo all of God's work in salvation, justification becoming 
unjustification and sanctification becoming desanctification. No, the scripture says these are done deals for the one whom God has set his love upon. So the fourth view is the one that I believe fits our passage. These are those who profess faith but never had genuine faith. But we'll see in these verses, they were in the church. They were hearing the truth. They were even benefiting from exposure and experience in the church. Let's look together at this passage. I do want to point out the pronouns that are used are all third person here. If you remember back to verse 1, the author doesn't hesitate to combine himself with his audience. Let us press on to maturity. And if I brought up all the other exhortations in Hebrews, you'd see it's normal. He always puts himself with, the, uh, with his readers. But here he distances himself because he says this is a unique group of hardened unbelievers. It says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened... And they have tasted of the heavenly gift, and they have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Hear the third person pronouns here. They do this. They crucify again to themselves. The author here is saying there is a group in and amongst the church that are unbelievers that if they do not repent now, they will cross a line that is a point of no return. Let's look at these. Uh, What I would give you first is five spiritual experiences that are true of both believers in the church and unbelievers. That's why this passage is so debated, because these five truths are are true of true believers in the body and of unbelievers, false converts, professing believers who do not have genuine faith. The first of these is those who have once been enlightened. Now, enlightened here is a a, a verb that just is the verb of the noun light. It is to enlighten someone, to, to, to give clarity and understanding. The idea here is that they are illuminated with the truth of the gospel. They understand it. They can articulate it. They profess to believe it. They know the truth. They've once been enlightened. All 11 times this is used in the New Testament, it refers to a knowledge of the truth, but not necessarily saving knowledge. Specifically in John 1.9, it makes it obvious that this doesn't mean universal saving knowledge. As John says about Christ, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. This doesn't mean Christ coming into the world saves every man. Rather, it brings the knowledge of the truth, the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. And this group, they have been enlightened. Now that would be true of believers and unbelievers in the church. They know the truth and even these, they profess to believe it. Secondly, they have experienced, notice here, tasted the heavenly gift. This word tasted is commonly used metaphorically in the sense of experiencing something. And I believe that's the sense here. They have experienced this heavenly gift. Now, it's the only time this phrase heavenly gift is used in the New Testament. But I I believe it refers to, as we might take it literally, a gift from heaven, namely spiritual gifts. Not that this group possesses the spiritual gift, but that they have experienced them. They have benefited from God's gifts given to the church. They were ministered to by the gifts. They were in and around the church where the heavenly gift of the Spirit was being exercised all around them. Thirdly, 
comes one that's often misunderstood. They have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. The basic idea of partaker is someone who is in close participation or association with something. It, it, this does not mean that they possess the Holy Spirit. They were indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but rather they were in close association with the Holy Spirit. Here, this would be something that certainly is true of believers. We are in close association with the Holy Spirit. But this phrase, this verb, made partakers, leaves room that this is speaking of someone who is in the church, at church events, serving, maybe even teaching. The distinction here is they do not possess the Spirit. They associate with the Spirit. That's what this phrase means. Number four and five are paired together. They have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. The same word, tasted, is the one we saw back in, in verse 4. This is that they have experienced, notice, the good word of God. I believe here it's that they could have testified to the goodness of the word of God. You say, how could an unbeliever testify to the goodness of the word of God? Because they, they affirm, they may even love listening to the truth. They love growing in knowledge about the Bible. They may even experience benefits in their life from having a, a, a biblical worldview and, and applying some principles. Maybe they, uh, they actually carry out biblical roles in their marriage and in parenting. They call their children to obedience. These are things that even an unbeliever would greatly benefit from and see the goodness of the word of God in, they could be even be like Herod in Mark 6.20 who put John the Baptist to death. And in that same verse, it says, and he, he loved, he enjoyed listening to John's preaching. Like, what is this? You, you love listening to John's preaching until it confronted you in your own sin, and then you did away with him. This is the idea. Someone can be in the church, they can know the goodness of the word, and yet if they refuse to believe and obey the Scripture, they demonstrate themselves to be unbelievers. Lastly, there the fifth one is in the powers of the age to come. They've experienced those as well. I believe powers of the age to come is used here the same way it's used in Hebrews 2.4, which speaks of miraculous powers on display in the early church. This would be the, the sign gifts that accompanied the apostles' teaching to verify the messages from the Lord. This is saying these people in the Hebrew church at this time experienced those supernatural powers, the powers of the age to come. Christ addressed this in Matthew seven twenty two. You remember, many will, will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord. And notice what they say in Matthew seven twenty two. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And what does Christ say to them? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They, in, in some regard here, even carried out miraculous powers of the age to come and they were in unbelief. They, they knew the goodness of the word of God, but they ultimately rejected it in their heart. And the, the sixth description comes here, and then to have fallen away. This is what demonstrates these were only professing believers void of true faith. This word only occurs here in the New Testament, and it is, in essence, apostasy. They have fallen away. They have abandoned the gospel. They've turned from Christ. 
So all six of these, based on the grammar of, of these verses, they all have to be true of this person for what we saw at the beginning. It is impossible for them to be renewed to repentance. All six of those. They've had all of these spiritual experiences and exposure to the truth. And then at that point, if they abandon Christ, if they walk away from the truth, if they reject the church, they are demonstrating they have crossed that point of no return. Now you and I, are not able to define where that line is for every single person. And I I don't believe that's what this passage is for, so that we could tell someone, you know, you're beyond the point of repentance, you can never repent. I don't think that's for us. But I think what we must declare in this passage is the warning. There is a point of no return. And the more spiritual exposure, the more spiritual experience you have, the more culpable you are. Because you have experienced how good the Lord is. You've experienced the blessing of His church. And if you're going to reject Christ after all of that, friend, you are in dangerous territory. It's a call to repentance, that exhortation, beware of apostasy. Notice why he says they cannot be restored. The end of verse 6, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame, they re-crucify Christ. This is the hard attitude of saying uh, that phrase uh, to themselves is as far as they are concerned. As far as I'm concerned, you can put Christ back on the cross. I don't want anything to do with Christ. I don't want anything to do with the church. I'm not saying put Christ on the cross so that he can atone for my sin. I'm saying I don't need Christ. He's a blasphemer just like the religious leaders assessed. Let's crucify him. Put him to open shames, the idea of public disgrace. The, the apostate publicly mocks Christ by abandoning the faith they formerly professed. There's so much debate over whether these apostates described here are presented as true believers. And I think that's intentional. The, the way I said those five descriptions could be true of a believer or an unbeliever, that's the point of the author. This is how close someone can be to the truth. And if their heart is hardened after all of this exposure and all of this experience, they have crossed that line. The author is showing how close the professing believer can be to the truth, but to reject Christ after all of these profound blessings is the point of no return. And you and I should beware of that. We must refuse to protect ourselves from spiritual immaturities. We must refuse to cater to sin in our life, allowing it to live unchecked. This is the end of the the life that is in unrepentant sin. Now let's move into the third step of abandoning spiritual immaturity. There we have the call to beware of apostasy. And thirdly is an illustration that teaches us, examine your fruit. Third step of abandoning spiritual immaturity, examine your fruit. The illustration is simple and frequently used in the scripture. You can see a similar example in Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. Here's the point. The rain proves the soil. Listen to Hebrews 6, 7. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. Verse 8 is a contrast. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. The point here is the same rain fell on both soils. 
And the rain proved what was actually in the heart, what was actually in the soil, proved whether or not it was useful soil that the Lord accomplished salvation in, or whether or not it was hardened unbelief. That was, as John would say, among us, but not of us. Here, the point is, the rain proves the soil. Uh, An implication for us is that when there is no rain, when there is no depth of biblical teaching, when there are not believers exercising their gifts, ultimately, if those people are professing Christ, we wouldn't know at that point. We wouldn't know because they're not sitting under the word and hearing how to respond to the truth. It is when the truth comes. And here, I believe rain here means more than just the scripture, although certainly in that Isaiah 55 example, it is the word of God that is the rain that waters the ground that never returns void. The reason I believe it's more than just the scripture here is because of those five blessings uh, described in four through six. You, you have the blessing of being around the people of God, seeing the Spirit's work in the midst of the people Tasting the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come. I believe that's what's included in the idea of rain. When you've had all these experiences, verse 7 is what should happen. It drinks the rain which often falls on it and it brings forth vegetation. This is the idea. It produces fruit. It produces fruit demonstrating that it is truly a regenerate heart. Demonstrating that it is truly trusting in the Lord. As we saw in verse 3, the Lord's the one who produces the fruit. But notice verse 8, but, and and implication here is it received the same rain, the same exposure, same experience. But look at what happens. It yields thorns and thistles. What does this indicate? There's not true faith here. Here's the word, experiences the church, but it rejects it ultimately. What are they demonstrating? They are close to being cursed. It's the idea of awaiting judgment, and it ends up being burned. This is the the truth that the unbeliever is awaiting final judgment, the lake of fire. Call for us in these two verses is to examine our fruit. Certainly all of us who are here all the time, we would testify that we have receive this exposure and this privilege and this blessing described. And the question for us is, how are we responding to spiritual exposure and experience in our hearts? Is it producing genuine fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5.22 fruit, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Christ, yielding our wills to his word. Or is it merely producing feelings of spirituality? Growing in knowledge about what the Bible talks about and gaining more talking points so we can beat people in spiritual arguments. That's the question. How do we respond to the rain, to the experience and exposure to the truth? Do you have fruit in your life? Do that inventory. And that's how we grow in spiritual maturity is by examining our fruit. And then lastly, in verses 9 through 12, The fourth step in abandoning spiritual immaturity is to return to diligence. Return to diligence. It says, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. I think verse 9 would be such a comfort after a severe warning if you're, if you're spiritual lazy and continue on that path, you could reach the point of no return because you're living in unbelief and you might not be renewed again to repentance. And then he says, but 
Beloved, we're convinced. We are persuaded of better things concerning you. Here's the description of those better things, things that accompany or belong to salvation. He's saying, he's saying, beloved, I believe that you are truly believers. I believe that you truly have salvation, even though we're speaking this way. It's not that the warning is empty. He's saying that I don't think this is an entire church of apostates here. He is believing that the Lord is using that warning to turn these believers from spiritual lethargy. Then he goes on in verse 10 and begins to tell us why he is persuaded of this. It says, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Notice the confidence here that these are true believers is based First of all, on the character of God. I think that's interesting. For God is not unjust to forget that you've produced genuine fruit. He is, his confidence is ultimately in the Lord. The, the fruit I saw in you at the beginning and the fruit you're still carrying out, that's the Lord's work in your life. That's why I believe that better things are coming for you, things pertaining to salvation, because I see the Lord's work. God is not so unjust to forget all these things that you have done in faith. God always does what is right. He is always righteous. He punishes sinners and he rewards the righteous. In verse 7, the fruitful soil received a blessing from God. In verse 10 here, we see the fruit that they have produced. He says here, your work, the love which you have shown toward his name, having ministered to the saints and still ministering to the saints. This is fruit of genuine faith. The presence of love for the Lord worked out in serving others is a sure sign of their salvation. Love for God demonstrated by love for his people. This word work by itself would not be a demonstration of saving faith. You guys are working really hard. You're doing a lot of activities and ministry. So I believe you're Christians. No, notice this work is coupled appropriately so with the word love. Your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. So the work, the labor, the diligence, the striving is an expression of love toward the name of God. So this isn't just comforting ourselves that we're doing a lot. This is, this is looking at fruit that God produces. I love the Lord, so I'm striving. And the author says, I see this in your life. I see your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. You're not working because you want praise for your own name. You want prominence in the eyes of others. You, you love the feeling of helping others. No, this is you love the Lord, so you want to serve his people. So he goes on to say, and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. This indicates past faithfulness and continued service in the body. And saints here just describes believers saying, you love the Lord, so you're serving the church And then in verse 11 and 12, the author seeks to exhort them to diligence, which will result in full assurance. Look at verse 11. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. The author expresses a deep desire, a a passion. The the word is literally lust. My, My deep passion for you is that you show the same diligence. Now, the word same diligence here implies that they previously showed this diligence. They have been in this season of spiritual sluggishness, the season where immaturities are rearing their ugly head. And and he's saying, friends, return to diligence. 
It's the fourth step in spiritual maturity. Return to diligence. Show the same diligence to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. That is the result of diligence. I love that. To realize the full assurance of hope until the end. What does this imply for us about assurance of salvation? It comes as a result of diligent striving. This is not assurance of salvation based upon just looking back to that day when you first professed Christ. I remember growing up, I would hear, if you ever doubt your salvation, just look in the front cover of your Bible and see that date that you prayed the prayer to receive the Lord and, and let that be a comfort to your heart. And now, now, I don't want to condemn that mindset all the way, but that is not the place to receive biblical assurance. You don't look back to past experience and exposure to the truth. Remember, the, the people of Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, they had exposure, they had experience. He's saying if you want full assurance, strive in diligence. Submit your will to the Lord's and your heart will be flooded with assurance. This is assurance of hope. Hope is the confident expectation that God will fulfill all of his promises. And notice it is until the end. This indicates steadfastness. He's not saying assurance will be a temporary thing when you have a good day and then you'll lose it every time you have a bad day. He is saying the one who is striving in diligence practicing the the fear of the Lord and yielding in faith in the moment of temptation, their heart's going to be flooded with diligence. They'll continue to strive. It'll build on itself, so much so that in verse 12, he tells us this diligence not only brings assurance, but it protects us from what we saw last week, spiritual sluggishness. Verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. This result of diligent striving, you get three things here. You get assurance of salvation at the end of verse 11. You get in verse 12, a protection from sluggishness, the spiritual laziness. That word sluggish is the same word we saw in 5.11 for dullness. That, that dullness, that was the reason he needed to address our spiritual immaturity for essentially a whole chapter was because we were dull. And he says, if you abandon spiritual immaturities and return to diligence, you're going to be protected from that spiritual sluggishness. And then lastly, here's what diligence produces. You will be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Diligence is imitating faithful believers ahead of you. Imitators here is where we get our English word for mimic. It is, it is to imitate them, to mimic their faith on display Notice here, this is not imitating of personalities, imitating of preference things, trying to imitate their gift or the way they say something. Notice what we're imitating. Faith and patience. We are imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. They're setting a diligent example for us of faith, trusting the promises of God and patience. Even when those promises are delayed, they still walk by faith. Those are the ones that you and I are to imitate. This is uh, basic discipleship. You follow after those who are faithfully imitating following after Christ. This is the path to abandon spiritual immaturities by pressing on to maturity, by bewaring, uh, being aware of apostasy and guarding our hearts from it, by examining our fruit. And then here, lastly, by returning to diligence. 
I just think, why did the author take an entire chapter to address immaturity before he could teach on the high priestly ministry of Christ? That's where it began. I want to tell you all about Christ according to the order of Melchizedek, but you have too much spiritual immaturities. You have dull hearing. You have all this lack of spiritual appetite. You don't have your senses trained. We need to abandon those immaturities before I can give you the depth of Christ's priestly ministry. But why? I believe the reason that the immature are not ready to receive the high priestly ministry of Christ, the access that Christ gives to the throne of grace, and the atonement that, that the Lord gives and offers is because the spiritually immature would just look at Christ's priestly ministry, His sacrifice, His atonement, and they would take that as a stamp of forgiveness on all of their unbelief and immaturity. It makes sense. The, the immature, the reason they weren't ready to learn about Christ according to the order of Melchizedek is because they would just say, oh, Jesus' blood covers my sin? Great. I'm going to keep in that sin then. I'm going to keep living in unbelief and unrepentant sin. And the author of Hebrews says, no, friend, that's the attitude that leads to apostasy. You need to press on to maturity and, and receive the full assurance of hope until the end. Whereas the mature believer who's diligently striving They'll learn of the high priestly ministry of Christ and they'll respond with rejoicing, recognizing all I have is Christ. My diligence is not earning me a single ounce of righteousness. It is just demonstrating that I believe Christ. I take him at his word. I walk by faith. So everything you'll tell me about Christ and his atonement, I'm not going to put any trust in myself and my works, but I'm going to strive because Christ saved me so that I would walk in these good works he prepared beforehand. May we abandon spiritual immaturity and apply all diligence in our faith so that we would realize the full assurance of hope firm into the end. Let's pray together. Lord, we marvel at your mercy, your kindness, that you would address hearts that are prone to wandering, prone to spiritual laziness and even after a time of diligent striving, we feel like we can, we can enter a season of, of spiritual laziness. I pray that we would consider so carefully this exhortation to maturity, this warning of apostasy, this illustration of judgment, and this call to return to diligence, and that we would be those who strive with every ounce of effort we have, and yet none of our trust would be in that effort. Lord, don't for a moment allow us to think that we are accomplishing any level of righteousness in and of ourselves, and yet at the same time, may we not treat your priestly work as though it is just a stamp of forgiveness so we can live in sin. Lord, may we exemplify the transformed life that is only possible through the saving work of Christ. And I pray for those in this room that have experienced spiritual exposure and they have heard the truth, and they call themselves believers, but they have not yielded in faith. May they heed this warning, and may they begin this path of spiritual maturity by trusting in Christ, repentance and faith, as we saw. We thank you for giving us all that we need for life and godliness, and we pray that you would grow us, that you would permit spiritual maturity to happen in our midst. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.